For the homeless that I work with, I see the one common denominator that they have is something has happened in their life and they lose everything. Everything that they've depended upon, everything that they've trusted in is gone. It's broken. People walk into that forest with the intent that they will never walk out. That's what Ryuichi tried to do. Commit suicide. So, this is when he was five, his parents didn't want him. They actually tried to drown him in the ocean. That rejection stayed with him his entire life. その富士山の頂上に5号目までかな Several times a week we have what we call sidewalk chapel, taking the church to the park and we're worshiping with the homeless where they are. So by approaching a homeless person, even a simple thing like giving somebody a piece of bread starts the relationship. About 10 years ago, several missionaries began working with homeless people. These marginalized people responded to the gospel. Japanese Christians joining with missionaries and homeless people and former homeless people who come back, we all team together to do the work. The first time I met Ryuichi, he had a little bit of hope and within a matter of weeks, this young man came to faith in Christ その<笑><笑> became a person of joy. He knows the word and he's taking responsibility for teaching and discipling others. The 180-degree transformation of this young man's life was amazing and, and a blessing to watch. I have the privilege of working with about 20 or 30 guys who have been baptized in the last couple of years. These men and women who were completely lost and now they've been found, they identify themselves with this body of Christ. To learn how much God loves you and operate out of that love. And that's transformational. Well, Christmas is a reminder of many things, but one of the things it reminds us for those of us who have grown up in a Southern Baptist culture and Southern Baptist heritage is that Christmas is an annual reminder of the partnership that we have with the International Mission Board 
to send missionaries all across this globe to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we support the International Mission Board in many different ways, but one of the primary ways in which we support the work of the International Mission Board is through the Lighty Moon Christmas Offering. Now, as a church, we take up a, a, an offering that, that we ask people to contribute to. Uh, that is our harvest offering, and 20% of that harvest offering that's taken up every year goes directly to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. This year, uh, we will be able to give around $22,000 to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering because of your gifts and your support to the harvest offering. But if you have not been a contributor to the harvest offering, or for some people, it's just, it's just a part of their routine. They were, they were raised as Southern Baptist every year to write a check for a Lottie Moon. And if you would like to give an additional gift or a gift uh, to, directly to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, there are envelopes that are in the pew racks in front of you that are for that purpose. And so if you would like to do that sometime during this holiday season, we ask you to prayerfully consider that. You can put that in. 100% of what you put in the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes directly to the International Mission Board. None of it comes into us. We are simply uh, pushing that right on into the work of International Missions. And we have, as, a, as Southern Baptist, around 4,000 missionaries that we employ, the largest Protestant missionary force in the world that is sharing the gospel in some very difficult places among people who most need to hear. And so over the course of the next four weeks, you'll see videos just like this, just as a reminder for us of ways that we can pray for our international missionaries during this time. Um, you know, as a kid, there were a lot of confusing things about Christmas, and especially the Christmas carols that we sing. Like one of the things that I always wondered as a kid is, why are we always singing to this lady named Gloria? Remember that? You know, Gloria. We sing that over and over and over again in one of our songs. And then when I was a kid, I wanted to know, I knew that the wise men brought gold and frankincense and myrrh, but why were they bringing lard? Why were we bringing lard to the baby Jesus? And then I realized it wasn't lard, it was laud. We're not bringing him lard. But it's always these interesting things that show up during our Christmas carols that we sing every year. And be quite honest with you, Christmas is my favorite time of year. Like David said, one of the things that I really enjoy about Christmas is the irony of a, of a culture that seems to do everything it possibly can to take Jesus out of everything, and yet we sing these songs and we have all these artists that will play these songs that are, that are hymns of the Christian faith that are so deeply embedded into our culture. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the subject of our Christmas series, Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room. You'll be familiar with that, with that phrase because it comes from one of the most famous Christmas carols, Joy to the World. And again, it's one of these interesting things that, that you will see secular shows that uh, will be going out over the, over the airways this Christmas season. And they will feature people who will walk up to someone's door and sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let every heart prepare Him room, and heaven and nature sing. And yet many people who sing that song have no idea exactly what Isaac Watts was writing when he was writing that hymn, and how important that hymn is for you and me. And we're going to be looking at that subject about what it means to, to prepare room in our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So if you've got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to Isaiah chapter 9 as we're going to ask ourselves the very same question that we sang just a few minutes ago. What child is this? Because in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet Isaiah begins to, to talk to us about the birth of a child. We're going to get to the text in just a second, but I, I was thinking about this as we were, as we were preparing these sermons, and, and I thought about this song, Joy to the World, and I thought about how often in the church we sing this song, but, but I was raised in a Baptist culture like many of you, and, and one of the things about my Baptist heritage that I'm, I'm not always as proud of is that we have this tendency to sing songs like we were reciting the Emancipation Proclamation in middle school. You know what I'm talking about? We have this tendency to stand up and sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Right? But just by way of grammar, if you, will, if you have a hymnal, which I'm not asking you to do that, if you have a hymnal and you open up to that, those, those phrases are marked with, marked with exclamation points, which means that they're to be sung with emotion and enthusiasm and we're to sing, when we're, when we're singing about joy to the world, the Lord has come. It should be a, a proclamation that we are singing, an exclamation of, of worship in our hearts. So with that in mind, I want us to think about that. Because when Isaac Watts was writing this hymn, many, many years ago, he was telling us something. He was telling us that you and I need to prepare ourselves for the arrival of the King. And I find it interesting that, that much of what we do at Christmas is we are constantly preparing for the arrival of the wrong things, right? Like one of the songs that you'll hear over and over and over again this holiday season is, here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right? Right down Santa Claus Lane, and everybody's getting ready for Santa. Or sometimes we're getting ready for the arrival of family, which is a very, very important thing. We're going to see family during this season that we don't normally see, see all the time. And, and there's a whole lot of, of preparation that we prepare ourselves for, but, but Isaac Watts is telling us in the hymn, Joy to the World, that the purpose of Christmas is to prepare ourselves for the arrival of the king. When a king was coming through your town centuries ago, you made every preparation that you had in order to see the king arrive, and you made every preparation for everything in the town to be the absolute best it could possibly be. And I think that's what Isaac Watts is thinking about when he says, let every heart prepare him room. Because there is a place in every human heart that was created solely for Jesus Christ. There's a place in every heart that was, that was created by God to be inhabited by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Christmas is a yearly reminder to all of us, especially those of us in the church, that you and I need more than anything else a Savior. It's why we sing songs about the Savior. It's why we celebrate the Savior. It's why we reflect so much on God's Word. Because we are being told over and over and over again through God's Word and through the songs that we sing that you and I need a Savior. And one of the most important things to me about Christmas is that the Lord knew that you and I needed Christmas long before any one of us came to be and hundreds of years before the event 
even took place. God knew that our greatest need was the need for a Savior, and our greatest need as Christians is to reflect on that truth. And so Christmas is not just some traditional holiday designed to give us a few days off of work in order to celebrate an overly commercialized holiday where we spend extravagant amounts of money that we don't have on presents for others that they don't need. It's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about the arrival of the Son of God into our world. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be preparing ourselves over the course of the next 25 days deeply for that. We should saturate ourselves in God's Word. And we should do everything possible during this time to make sure that every person that we come into contact with understands that Christmas is about the arrival of King Jesus. We don't have them here today, but next week when you come to church, we're going to have some invite cards. We're going to have them tomorrow night when we give out our hot chocolate. We've ordered a thousand invite cards that we want our church members to take with them over the course of the next three or four weeks and go and find a co-worker or a friend or a neighbor or a family member and just say, you know what, I would really appreciate it if you would join me at my church this year during Christmas. And it has some information on there about our worship times and our, our adult Christmas musical next week and our Christmas Eve service. And we want you to use this as an opportunity to leverage the gospel into people's lives because even people who don't have much to do with church or much to do with God are very sensitive during this time of year to spiritual truth. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus Christ has entered our world and it is a sovereign gift from God that we should pause and reflect deeply upon every year. And so with that in mind, I want us to look at what Isaiah the prophet says in Isaiah chapter 9 as he begins to describe for us the birth of the Christ child. Isaiah is a prophet who was called out to proclaim his message to a sinful people. And the people whom Isaiah is talking to had wanted a king to rule over them and to provide security for them. And, and, and they eventually got that in the form of human kings. But because human kings are still sinful people, they often led God's people to sin. And God's answer to the sin and the idolatry of his people was to bring judgment on them, oftentimes in, form, in the form of invasion from their enemies. And Isaiah the prophet, as he begins to prophesy through these next 40-something chapters, Isaiah is, is telling them that there are harsh, dark days that are coming upon the people of Israel. But even in the midst of those harsh, dark days, he gives them a glimpse of a promise of hope. So Isaiah chapter 9, he says in verse 1, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought contempt in the land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now let me stop and, and, and pause there because the land of Zebulun and Naphtali is, is, is a reference to the region of Galilee. And what he is talking about here is that there are going to be dark days over that region. It's going to be a very dark place. But God is going to take this very dark place in an obscure part of, of, of northern Israel and he is going to bring out of it the most glorious gift ever. And so that's why he says there was contempt in this land, but eventually there's going to be glory. And so in verse 2 he says, The people 
who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then Isaiah gives this last statement, which is probably one of my favorite statements. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is telling us here that that our God is a zealous God. And that our God is zealous for the expansion of His glory and the salvation of His people. And that it's the zeal of God Almighty that will accomplish the salvation of His people. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's not up to our goodness. It's not up to our inherent righteousness. It's not up to our faithfulness. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, that will accomplish this. As we said a second ago, when... Isaiah speaks this prophecy. It's coming on the heels of of many decades of of a series of different sinful kings who eventually led their their people into sin and idolatry. One of those was the king Ahaz, who was during Isaiah's day. And Ahaz built altars to idols and and began to, to, to lead his people to worship the idols of of the lands around them. And as a result of that, God began to bring great judgment upon His people. And yet, even while He is bringing judgment on His people for their sin and their spiritual infidelity, God is deeply moved by mercy for their plight and faithful to His promise that He will establish in them His people with a righteous King who will rule over them forever. In the midst of the bad news that the Assyrian army is soon going to attack their land, God declares in Isaiah chapter 9 the good news that the righteous king is coming. And he's warning them that dark days are ahead, but in in those dark days he is telling them there is something to hold on to because the righteous king is coming to rule over his people forevermore. But he's not the king that they are expecting. Because he's not initially coming as a warrior, he's coming as a child. And he isn't coming from the nobility of the city of David, but he's coming from the uppermost remote regions of Galilee. And so as we think about this and as we reflect on that song, what child is this that that Mary is holding and that the the shepherds and the angels are guarding and singing about? What, What child is this? Who is this child that the prophet Isaiah is telling us about? And what does this gift of of a child to God's people mean for you and me today in 2019? Well, if we look at what Isaiah is saying here, we see three promises about this child. Number one, this child is the light who pierces our darkness. 
This child that Isaiah is speaking about in Isaiah 9, 6 is the light who pierces our darkness. Now again, how many of you were afraid of the dark as a child? Any of you? Any of you afraid of the dark as a child? Okay, now some of y'all are just, just not being very honest here. How many of you are still afraid of the dark? Anybody want to admit that? Okay, good, good. I remember being a kid, I was deathly afraid of the dark. I used to keep a light on in the bathroom um, all the time. And even today, I'm a little bit uncomfortable in, in, in darkness. Maybe some still battle the fear of darkness. Because darkness is, is a terrible thing. Especially if you are in a season where you feel very vulnerable or alone. If you're feeling vulnerable or if you're feeling abandoned, darkness can be a debilitating thing. And the darkness has a way of amplifying the the situation that you are in. Sometimes darkness can feel overwhelming and suffocating. People who suffer from depression often will describe what they are experiencing as, as living in a very terrible, dark place in their mind. A place where they they know instinctively that they are alive, but everything around them feels dead and lifeless. And in the situation that the prophet Isaiah is describing, beginning in Isaiah chapter 6 and 7 and 8, he is foretelling to God's people impending bad news that they are about to face very dark days on the horizon. Because to the northeast, the mighty army of the Assyrians have begun a path of conquest and destruction that will eventually pose a very serious threat to God's people. The Assyrians are godless, unrighteous people, but because of the sin and the rebellion of God's people, God is going to allow this godless army to sweep down to attack His people. They will eventually attack and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, taking many of their inhabitants as captives and relocating them into other places. And they will one day eventually attack the southern kingdom of Judah and lay siege for many years to the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah is telling them, God's people, that they are about to go through a long, prolonged period of warfare and captivity that will all be brought about because of their sin and their rebellion against God and His Word. And what Isaiah describes here is really two types of darkness. The first is the darkness of difficult situations. All of us at some time or another have experienced the darkness of a a difficult and unwelcome situation. It's probably something that you never saw coming. Maybe a difficult health crisis. Maybe an abandonment from a trusted loved one. Maybe it was the unexpected loss of a job. Whether it's navigating through a series, a season of depression, or whether it's praying about a prodigal child, the darkness of difficult situations can sometimes envelop us in such a way that we cannot see a way out. That was part of what the people of God were about to experience. And many of us probably are going through that today. Some of us in here are going through some incredibly difficult situations. There are people in here who've lost loved ones this year, who are facing not only this past week of Thanksgiving, but the next several weeks of Christmas without someone very important to them who's been in their life for many years. There are others that are facing 
the darkness of an uncertain future. There's some people that have, have gotten a phone call recently from a doctor that said, we saw something on your test, we want you to come in next week and talk about it. And all of a sudden you're filled with, with, with fear and anxiety about the unknown. But there's a different kind of darkness that Isaiah is describing here. It's not just the darkness of difficult situations, it's the darkness of the soul. It's the darkness of sin. It's the darkness that's brought about by the consequences of dozens of personal choices in our lives to disregard God's Word and to spurn God's best for our lives. It's the darkness that's brought about by our own sinful choices. And I don't know if, if you think about that very much, but I think about that often, about how many times the choices that I have made to disregard what God's Word says to me or to spurn God's best for me has led me into very, very, very difficult and dark places personally. And this is where God's people found themselves. They were about to experience the rightful consequence of, of years and years of rebellion against God and His Word and years of choosing to worship worthless idols. It's easy for us to look at the people of Israel and to, and to wonder how with all of the things that God had done for them, with, with all of the stories of, of Moses leading the people across the wilderness with a pillar of cloud of, of, of fire and, and a pillar of cloud by day and God parting the Red Sea and God providing manna and God leading them to destroy all these cities with, with Joshua. It's easy for us to look at them and say, how could they be... How could they be so neglectful? How could they fall so easily to, to, to then begin to worship these carved images and to say that these are the gods that we worship? It's easy for us to, to question the idolatry of others until we begin to understand that you and I are just as guilty of it. We just worship different idols. Our idols are the idols of power and money and pleasure. And so many times we, we bow down to those idols and, and then come in here and put on a religious mask and sing songs that we really don't mean to a God that we really don't worship. I was thinking about that this week because, you know, here in Alabama, in the south, in Mississippi where I grew up, we have some pretty big idols in our sports teams. And... And Howard, you and I had a pretty good worship time on Thursday night, right? And, and yet, even in the midst of that, I was thinking about that this morning as I was coming to church, and, and I, I put it on my, my social media feed, that whatever idol you spent the majority of your time worshiping this week, Jesus is better. Whatever idol it was, might be the idol of entertainment and sports, might be the idol of family, might be the idol of money, but whatever idol your heart has given its attention and worth and focus to this, this week, the reason why you're here this morning is because Jesus is better than any of those idols. And Christmas is a reminder to us that our hearts are wired to worship something much better than the worthless idols of this world. You know, you and I may never really truly understand the meaning of Christmas until we first understand the reality that this world that we live in is a very dark place. And in this particular context, the darkness that 
Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, when he says, the people who walked in darkness. This darkness does not just mean personal inconvenience, but it means evil and ignorance. It's a reminder that this world is full of evil and suffering and that none of us are wise enough to have the cure. And so what do we do? Well, some people turn to mystics and scholars and self-proclaimed experts to help them to make sense of the darkness. But the reality is that none of us in this world have the cure to the darkness. Only God does. And so what does Isaiah tell us? He tells us the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Have you ever been in a dark room and someone unexpectedly turns on the light? You ever been there before? I remember being one time in a cave as a kid and we were, we were going down inside of this cave and, and there were, we had all the flashlights and we could barely see our way around. And then we got down into the deepest recesses of this cave where it was really, really dark and they told us to turn off our flashlights and we were just in this enveloped darkness. And then they turned the lights on to show us the things that were in the cave that we couldn't see with our little small flashlights. That's kind of what Isaiah is describing here, that, that people who have dwelt in incredibly deep darkness, all of a sudden their, their world is filled with light. It is awash with brilliance and the things that were previously hidden are now being exposed. You see, what we celebrate at Christmas is we celebrate the fact that the light of the world has come. John said it in John chapter 1 this way. He said, In Him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, what Christmas declares for us is that Jesus Christ is the light who pierces our darkness. And what is the result of seeing this light? Verse 3, it's joy. Not just joy, but multiplied, increasing joy. Have you ever noticed when you're living in darkness, you seldom experience joy? Darkness and joy are antithetical to each other. But what the prophet Isaiah is telling us here is that the coming of the light of Jesus Christ brings joy to the world. And for that reason, we sing, let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. You see, he is the light that pierces our darkness. But secondly, he is the warrior who conquers our foes. He is the warrior who conquers our foes. We see this in verses 4 and 5 when he speaks about the yoke of burden and the staff of, of, of oppression, the rod of oppression. And then he says in verse 5, every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, every garment rolled in blood, these things will be burned as fuel for the fire. Prophet Isaiah turns from the image of light to the image of war to let us know that this promised child is not only the light of the world, but he is the conquering king. And as the prophet speaks these words, God's people are about to endure and enter into centuries of oppression and occupation from their enemies. It would begin with the Assyrian siege upon their, 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 their city. But that would be followed soon by the conquest and exile to Babylon. That they would be exiled for 70 years in a, in a foreign land. That would be followed by living under the rule of the Persians 
They would eventually relocate to their land only to have a, 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 a shadow of the glory that it once did and eventually to be overtaken by the Greeks and finally the Romans who would rule over them with an iron fist. And when Isaiah speaks these words, the people of God are about to enter into centuries of enemy occupation and personal oppression. And yet Isaiah is telling them to hold on because a child is coming, a king is coming, and this king is going to be a conquering king. He borrows the image of Judges chapter 7 and the story of Gideon. And you remember the story of Gideon probably. If you've never heard that story before, Gideon was a a judge, a, a person who was raised up by God during a period in which God's enemies were assaulting his people in the promised land. Again, God's people had forgotten God. They had sinned against him. And because of that, God had sent the Midianites to invade their land. God's people began to cry out to God and began to repent and began to ask God to, to save them. And so God raised up the most unlikely warrior from a, a small tribe out of the middle of nowhere, a guy by the name of Gideon, and he, he raised him up and made him the captain of the army of the Lord. And Gideon prepares for battle. He gathers all the people together that are ready to go into battle. He has 32,000 soldiers, and he begins to pray and say, okay, God, we're ready to go to battle. And God says, you got too many men. You remember the story, right? you got to reduce your army. And so he gives him a couple of tests to reduce his army. And to make the long story short, he goes from an army of 32,000 to an army of 300. And then he says, I don't want you to take up swords and shields. I want you to take up torches and pitchers of water. And I want you to stand up on the hill and I want you to scream loud and shatter the pitchers. And when you do, you'll see what happens. And so Gideon and his army do that. And the Midianite army see this, these torches and this loud noise and they suddenly get frightened and and the massive army of the Midianites flee and leave and Gideon and his army of 300 men walk into the middle of a battle that was won for them by the Lord. They never had to raise a sword in the process. And Isaiah borrows from that imagery to tell us that there's a coming day when God's son will come and when he does he comes as a conquering warrior who fights our battles for us. He is a warrior who conquers our foes. And while we are shaking in our boots, wondering what in the world's going to happen next, our warrior comes and defeats every single enemy. Our enemy may be doubt and insecurity. Our enemy may be fear and anxiety. Our enemy may be physical pain and suffering. Our enemy may be addiction. Our enemy may be pride and greed. But the greatest enemy that you and I face is sin. It's the enemy of our soul. And the enemy of sin wraps its dark tentacles around our hearts and slowly begins to choke out the life that we have. It binds us to its pleasures and promises us that rewards that it seldom delivers and which never truly satisfy. Sin promises freedom, but it brings enslavement. Sin promises satisfaction, but it brings misery and heartache. Sin promises life, but it brings us death. And death is the final and victorious blow of sin. And yet in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when the perishable, that is our our mortal bodies, when our mortal bodies put on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up 
in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the warrior that defeats our enemies. You see, Christmas is more than just a yearly occasion to celebrate our temporal lives through wanton commercialism and wasteful spending. All in an attempt to fill our lives with things that will not bring us satisfaction. I think one of the most interesting and humorous things about Christmas is the number of people that show up on December 26 to return the gifts that they really didn't need that somebody spent money on to give them in the first place. Christmas is more than that. Christmas is a worshipful reminder to you and me that the child who was born in an obscure town of Bethlehem thousands of years ago is not only the light that pierces the darkness, but he is the mighty warrior who has come to defeat sin and death. Which brings us to the third truth, and that is that Isaiah is telling us that this child is not just the light that pierces our darkness and the warrior who defeats our foes, but he is the Savior that our hearts really need. He is the Savior that our hearts really need. This phrase in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is one of the most familiar and one of the most comforting. When he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be called, shall be put on his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Have you ever thought much about your name? Have you ever thought much about why you have the name you do or where you got it from? Maybe your parents told you. Maybe your name is something to do with, with your family. Maybe you were given a family name. I've heard some people over the years who've had some very odd names, and you say, well, where did you get that? Well, I got that because my grandfather was up to such and such, and you go, okay. Maybe your parents picked out a name for you. Maybe, maybe the name that was picked out for you was the one that your mother wanted to name their child for the last 20 years. When I have a baby, I'm going to name them, and maybe that's why you got that name. But have you ever thought much about your name? Our, our names don't mean as much in our culture most of the time as they do in the Eastern culture. I once heard the story about a man who had one of the most peculiar names ever. His name was Nosmo King. Nosmo King was his name. And for years, people asked him where the name Nosmo came from and why his mother chose to name him Nosmo. Well, it turns out that after she gave birth to him in the hospital, she had not picked out a name, and so she looked up and saw the no smoking sign that hung on the wall in the delivery room, and she named him Nosmo King. That is the most peculiar name that I have ever heard. In the Eastern culture, people were usually named after their fathers or some important person within their history. So if you remember, when Jesus encounters one of his disciples, his name is Simon. He's not only Simon, he's called Simon Bar-Jonah, which meant Simon the son of Jonah. But Jesus changed his name. Do you remember that? Jesus changed his name to Petra or Peter because he would be the rock of the apostles. And when Jesus was to be born, everyone assumed that Joseph would name the baby after someone in the family, maybe even after Joseph himself. But do you remember what the angel told Joseph? 
The angel told Joseph, you will name his baby what? this baby what? Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is a New Testament form of the name Joshua, which means the God who saves. You see, every single one of these names of Jesus in, that we look at at Christmas carries some significance that, that remind us about who he is. He is the Savior of the world, the Savior that our hearts need. Not only that, Isaiah chapter 6, and when the angel visits Mary, she says the same, he says the same thing to her, that you will call this baby Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. It's a reminder to us that our God is not just a transcendent God in heaven who is separated from us, but that He is a God who has chosen to enter our world of sin and suffering. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, he goes even deeper. He gives us four names of Jesus which have personal significance for each and every one of us. The first name is the name Wonderful Counselor. And it's Wonderful Counselor, not Wonderful, comma, Counselor, which is the way we oftentimes read it, right? It's Wonderful Counselor. And as the Wonderful Counselor, it's a reminder to us that our God will guide us with supernatural wisdom. Our God will guide us with supernatural wisdom. The word wonderful refers to the ability to work supernatural miracles and wonders. It was a sign of the divine power of Jesus. But Jesus is not just a miracle worker. He is the all-wise teacher. And Jesus Christ and His divine word will guide us into the paths of wisdom and to be a light into our path. As the wonderful counselor, he guides us with supernatural wisdom. But he's not only a wonderful counselor, he's also the mighty God. And as the mighty God, it is a, it is a promise to us that this child is powerful enough to defeat every enemy, even the enemy of sin. Jesus is our mighty God who cannot be defeated. And as such, we can hide behind him because we don't have to fight our battles ourselves. We have one who fights on our behalf. He's not only the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, but he is the everlasting father. And as the everlasting father, he knows what's good and he loves us with an everlasting love. And while the term father is often used in scripture as for God the father, the first person of the Trinity, here Isaiah tells us that Jesus will be called the everlasting father. It's a reminder to us of the tender fatherly love that Jesus displayed over his disciples. And that our Savior is not just a, an aloof God, but he is a good father who knows what's best for us in our lives, even when we don't. And he's a father who loves us unconditionally, no matter how far we have strayed. But finally, he is also known as the Prince of Peace. The word prince refers to Jesus as a righteous ruler and the heir of the kingdom of God. But the, God's kingdom is not a kingdom marked by conflict. God's kingdom is a kingdom marked by peace. Jesus said to his disciples in, in John chapter 14, Peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. And Colossians chapter 1.20 says that Jesus Christ has made peace by the blood of his cross. And so as the Prince of Peace, that designates for us that His rule is one of righteousness, justice, and peace. We use the term peace in a lot of different ways in the English language. 
Most of the time when we use the word peace, we mean it as the absence of conflict. I just want peace in my house, right? I want my kids to stop fighting. I want my spouse to get off my case. I want my boss to leave me alone, right? I just want some peace. I need the absence of conflict for a little while. I'm going to go out in my shop or I'm going to go turn on my TV because right now what I need is some peace, right? That's not the way the Bible describes peace. When the Bible describes peace, it describes it as the full realization of the favor of God. It's to achieve in our lives all of the things that God has planned. And so through Jesus and Jesus alone, you and I can fully and finally experience the favor of God in our lives. When the Bible describes Him as the Prince of Peace, it doesn't mean that it's just the absence of conflict in our lives, but it means that through Jesus we can fully and finally once again experience the favor of God for which we were created. And then the Bible says in the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, God has done everything possible and everything necessary to accomplish the salvation of His people. And He's brought us a Savior who is the light in the midst of our darkness. And He's brought us a Savior who is the warrior who conquers our enemies, including the enemy of sin and death. But ultimately, this baby in the manger, this child, is the Savior that you and I most need in our lives. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and... I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe this morning you've never given much thought to, to all the things that the Bible tells us about who Jesus is, but more than anything else, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That He's the Savior of the world, that He is the one who has died on the cross to pay for every sin that you've ever committed, and that who went to the grave in the death that you deserve, and then rose again victorious three days later to bring you life and peace. And maybe this morning you need to lay down your goodness, lay down all of those things that you've been carrying, lay down that weight of your sin, and maybe today you need to come and experience Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior who has come. So in just a moment we're going to sing a song. We'll give you an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Today, if you need to become a follower of Jesus Christ, you want to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, we want you to come. And we have some decision counselors that will go and talk to you about that. Maybe you don't want to walk in front of a bunch of people today, and that's fine, I understand that. Maybe you just need to talk to a decision counselor or a staff person after the end of the service. We have people that are available here to do that as well. Maybe you need to come for some other reason this morning. Maybe you've been dwelling in a land of deep personal darkness lately, and You just need the light of Christ to shine on you this morning. Maybe you need to come and just surrender yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ anew today. Whatever it is, you respond as the Lord Jesus leads. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a Savior. And you've not left us to wonder the question, what child is this? You've told us exactly who it is in your word. So Father, I pray that today that we would all experience Jesus Christ as the light in our darkness and the warrior in our battles, and the Savior that our hearts really need. So call us to you today, Lord Jesus, and give us the strength and the courage to respond. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?
And you respond as the Lord Jesus leads you.